Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It is not to linger on, on the individual tiny traumas. It's not to dwell. It's not to ruminate. It's to have the awareness so that we can use our experiences proactively, and I mean proactively, dynamically, and that we do develop those coping mechanisms. We do strengthen our psychological immune system. And then that means that everything we experience in life, we can use for our own well-being, for our own mental health in the way that really, truly serves us. Welcome to the Unwind Podcast, a show to help you pause, relax, reflect, and be curious. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best selling author and entrepreneur exploring the human experience. I interview world leading thinkers, shaping ideas around the mind, health, spirituality, philosophy, and culture. I'm often reminded that thoughts become things, so we need to choose the good ones. I hope this show helps you to do that too. On today's podcast, I have the author of Tiny Traumas, a book that explores all the small cuts and scrapes that occur to our psyche that can actually have a huge impact on how we feel, how we react to life, and how we understand ourselves. But often these small things we don't even recognize because they could cause us so much emotional hurt, but we will shrug them off as too small to think about. We often will gaslight ourselves for caring about such small incidences, but actually over time, these small events can build up and really have an impact on how we feel. So instead of pushing down these feelings, Dr. Meg shows us a way to embrace them, to become more psychologically healthy in the process. After a while, if you don't recognize our tiny traumas, they can often blow up and suddenly we have huge reactions to quite on the surface, small, meaningless situations. But it's a bit like death by paper cuts. It's those small paper cuts that happen time and time again. And after a while, we snap. But when we begin to understand tiny traumas and understand the different ones that we've all gone through, we begin to develop a really amazing understanding of why we are who we are. And this allows us to move through the world with greater peace, greater clarity, and most importantly, more compassion. Dr. Meg is a chartered psychologist, a chartered scientist, an associate fellow of the British Psychological Society, and has a PhD in psychology. As Dr. Meg explains in her brilliant new book, life doesn't have to be full of tiny traumas weighing us down or leading us to high-functioning anxiety or perfectionism, but there are tools and steps that can help us heal and thrive. I would love for you to share a piece of writing that resonates with you. So this little, little excerpt is from the introduction of Tiny Traumas. It's nothing major, it's nothing big, and you can't quite put your finger on it, 
but somehow you still feel under, underwhelmed, undervalued, and beloved. You have a nice enough family, an okay job, and it is a job after all, and a good enough group of friends. There's food on the table, there's shelter, there's warmth. So in the hierarchy of needs, you are doing just fine, but somehow you don't quite feel happy. And isn't that the goal society sets us all up for, whether it be enforced to our parents, teachers, friends, the workplace, or virtually everywhere we look? Now, nothing all like that has happened in life, well, nothing major, but that's just the thing. We are taught to ignore the tiny T traumas, these traumas that gradually and insidiously leave a hollow space with their undercurrent of that constant melancholy and niggling sparks of anxiety, all wrapped up in a film of other people's insta-perfect lives. I remember that exact extract when I was reading the book because it hit home so much around the guilt so many of us feel when we don't feel happy and we look around and go, but I've got so much to be grateful for. Why, why, why? And we kind of then self-gaslight ourselves or mm-hmm. undermine, you know, ourselves in different ways. We, As you said, we kind of, you know, suppress, we push it down, push it down. Well, I can't feel like this. This is ridiculous. I don't deserve to feel like this. And that excerpt in your entire book really identifies such a feeling that so many listeners I know will be able to relate to. So put simply, what are tiny traumas and what are you really talking about? Yeah, so... That is just such a good explanation, actually. And that's something that I call reverse misery trumps. When, because we're compassionate, actually, and because we care about others, we look around us and we think, you know what, I, it's not that bad. I haven't got it that bad. And and um, we know optimism is so good for our mental health. So as you know, I just, I just need to ignore all this stuff. I need to just, you know, keep calm and carry on and keep going and keep going and keep going. But actually... Like if we ignored some sort of, you know, minor physical health problems, they do build up and they can cause us some really substantial issues really within our lives, within our quality of lives and with our functioning. But we have done so well, so well to talk about mental health now and, you know, including your podcast, which is just awesome. And we really do have the discourse to talk about psychological and emotional health and functioning But like anything, we tend to start with the most severe cases. So within scientific study, but also within mainstream discourse, because first of all, they're the most obvious cases. So we have talked a lot about trauma. So what is called big T trauma, so capital T trauma. So those events that we know profoundly affect us psychologically and in a lot of cases physically and really do leave that mark. So living through a natural disaster, living through a war, things like this, they really are profoundly traumatic. We also know that life events can leave those nicks and scrapes and scars, but those major scars, so losing a loved one, going through a divorce, even things like being in you know, a, an accident, a traffic accident or, or health issues. But there are all sorts of things that we encounter on a daily basis and we look at these in terms of the lowercase team we're talking about trauma. So that tiny T in trauma. And these are things that are just so insidious because they happen and we accept them. And we, as you say, gaslight ourselves to the point 
that we are walking around almost like zombies and not understanding our own internal emotional world, not understanding why we feel the way we feel, oftentimes not even being able to put our finger on what that feeling is. Because actually there's some sort of positive aspect because we do care about others and we do feel compassionate. But we kind of are coming a little bit full circle where we need to talk about the full range of mental health and not just focused on the worst of the worst so that we can actually develop and build our own coping mechanisms, but also help each other because we're social creatures after all. I don't know who said this, but it really leads me to think about if we can't even label something, how on earth can we solve it, heal it, overcome it, if we're not even willing to look at something? And for so long, so many of us have felt, oh, well, we're not allowed to feel bad <laughs> because there are so much worse things in the world. And obviously, if you look at the news and you see some catastrophes or you look at you know, the terrible happenings of Ukraine, you're like, well, you I don't know. deserve to feel sad. And that isn't helpful, is it? No, because th those things are not mutually exclusive. Absolutely, there are terrible things happening in the world, but mm. there are also things that are difficult that can happen in our lives. And so both can exist at the same time. I think you've nailed something that I think about a lot, which is the it's not mutually exclusive it takes a long time for a conversation, as you just alluded to, it takes a long time for a conversation to start being able to be a bit more nuanced. And yes. so I deeply appreciate your nuanced approach to mental health with explaining what tiny traumas are. So what are the most common little traumas you observe in your practice and especially when you were researching the book? No, definitely. So what really sort of led me to write the book is that I did start to see patterns in my practice or give you sort of a typical client that would come and see me. So they would come in and one of the first things that, that they would say would be, I don't know why I'm here. And they'd almost be edging out the door and I don't deserve to be here. There's nothing that bad, but I just know I don't feel right. And so what we tend to explore is actually it could be easier to look at the behaviors, easy to look at the overt behaviors, because it can be hard to identify, as you rightly said, it's be hard to identify really our feelings and what we're experiencing. So what I see most commonly in my practice, high function anxiety. And if I had to say sort of the top thing that I see, it, it is that. So feeling very anxious quite a lot of the time, if not all the time, but still actually being able to carry out what we call your activities of daily living. So you can still go to work, you can still carry out your um, roles and responsibilities if you care for other people, you can still take care of your personal needs, but you know what? It feels hard. And that can then go on to affect our sleep. It can then go on to affect our eating patterns. So I see a lot of sleep dysfunction, but maybe not something that if you went to the GP, it'd be diagnosed as insomnia per se, but it definitely disturbs sleeping patterns. Emotional eating mm -hmm. is a huge one, a really big one, and that is then really sort of linked to, you know, we have the availability of, of these very soothing types of foods that don't actually soothe. But so those sort of behavioral patterns are much easier to identify and we can start, we really can start from that. Other things like maladaptive perfectionism is, is a big one. Imposter syndrome is a big one. So in the book, there are a number of these presentations that I see 
every single day. And if you don't experience that, I guarantee someone you know will. Absolutely. What is trauma reinforcement and how does this link to tiny traumas? Because I think this is so important for people to be aware of because it explains so much behavior that we don't understand why we reacted to different situations in the way that we have or did. So when we go through something that's that's very difficult, whether that is a major trauma or sort of the buildup of tiny T traumas, we make associations. Our minds, our brains make associations because they want to keep us safe. So what happens then is that when there are features in the environment that are similar to these situations, that emotional, that limbic reaction will happen almost immediately. And again, I just see it every day. People say, I had such a severe reaction and actually very little was happening. When we unpick some of the features of the environment of that situation, it is often impossible to start connecting the dots between what happened then and something that could have happened many years ago. And at the time may have been pushed under the carpet by the individual or by family, friends, the environment in that sense, but actually had a profound impact. And the point I really want to make about trauma and tiny chi trauma, it is not about the size of the event. It's about the impact it has on the individual because something can happen to you and it may not really affect you at all. That same thing can happen to someone else. And because of their previous experience, because of lots of things in their lives, it has a massive substantial impact. So we really, you know, we must be quite mindful about trauma shaming people in that sense because we're all unique. We all have this constellation of traumatic and positive, of course, experiences that make us who we are. That's really interesting. You know, just to double down on that point around trauma shaming and how different events might affect someone completely disproportionately from what we would imagine of an event would have an effect on someone. Can you give us an example of that? I think that would be quite helpful. Yeah, so I'll I'll give you an example from my life. So I struggled with fertility and went through IVF process, and that is very challenging. That that's something that is difficult in itself. And I knew that I was kind of ready for that. Did a lot of the prep for that. Felt quite tooled up for that, and actually became pregnant, and then lost lost that pregnancy. And that, of course, was incredibly traumatic. It was it was hard, but again felt that I had the support for that at the time. And that was something that when discussing that with with friends and family, I actually felt quite comfortable in discussing that. But with with a friend of mine, a colleague who engaged in what we call toxic positivity. So her intent, and again, it's important to sort of separate the intent and the impact. Her intent was actually to, to try to be supportive. But she said something that profoundly impacted me. She said, oh, well, with everything else you've got got going on in your life, it's probably for the best. Probably not the best time. And I was so stunned. It literally took my breath away. And I was just walking around in a bit of a daze. And it it was days later. And I was like, wow, this, this is confusing because it was one comment. It doesn't feel that big but for me for what I'd have experienced what I'd been through and and not just through the IVF but actually through some instances of toxic positivity before it did have a profound impact and I knew then I needed to take really pay really pay attention to that 
that's so deeply relatable because I think we can all think about examples in our, in our own life when something has been said to us that feels just so hurtful. And yet when we're explaining it, it feels so minor. Mm-hmm. And this is why I think I appreciated your book so much because that disconnect, you kind of reconnect and help so much self-understanding. There was a point in the book what I thought was fascinating about how we can overly focus on childhood when thinking about or trying to ex- understand our own psychology. Mm-hmm. And yet actually tiny traumas can happen at all times of life. Indeed, indeed. And quite a few clients that I see, they, they have seen a range of practitioners that are really focused. And um, rightly, because again, you know, a lot of a lot of our research and practice is based on that because psychology is a relatively new discipline mm-hmm. if we think about it. It's it's not really been around that long and we're still learning so much. But tiny traumas absolutely can happen at any point in our lives. And they can layer up. So they can be things that happen just with another person. They can be things that are actually from a bigger macro level in our environment, like living through a pandemic, like viewing quite a lot of very difficult things on a daily basis where it's constant, constant, constant. So it doesn't have to be something. And again, that's where we can get led off course because we can think, well, do you know what? I I wasn't in an abusive home when I was growing up. So maybe I shouldn't feel this way, but I know. And having that trust in ourselves that, we know something that's not right and having the patience to be able to explore that is incredibly important. And to help people do that, I've devised a three-stage process just to make it a little bit clearer. And it's called the AAA process. And the first A stands for awareness. So being aware, first of all, that tiny T traumas, tiny traumas exist and that they are real things that do impact us. But also starting to unpick some of the tiny traumas that have happened in in your life. And there are quite a few exercises in the book that can help people sort of do that and think about that. But then the second A is acceptance because we, we can't actually change the past, but we can take actions for the future. So the third A is action because having awareness and acceptance then isn't quite enough. We do need to take these experiences and use them in a really proactive way to build what I call the psychological immune system. Describing mental health similarly to the immune system, I thought was such a clever metaphor because it helped me understand the psychological tools in a completely different way. Would you mind expanding on that a little bit? Not at all, not at all, because it's important to make some of these concepts really tangible because everyone does know much more about physical health. But t- to be fair, we we didn't, you know, for a long time, again, we didn't. We assume that that's, you know, common knowledge everyone has, but we, we have it now because people did so much research and then so much education and everything. So we're just a little bit earlier on with, within psychology. But so I liken basically our coping mechanisms and our resilience to the physical immune system. So the psychological immune system is like physical immunity in the sense that we are born with some protection, as it were. So we have a physiological stress response that is there to alert us to threats in the environment. Just like in terms of the physical immune system, we will have some of that when we're born from our mothers. So we do have some of it from birth. But actually, with children, 
we would often, you know, allow them to play in the dirt and allow them to pick up some bugs and things so that we they can build up psychological immunity. And we all accept that. We all accept that that is a physiological process. And this is a point, again, I really want to make. We shouldn't be fearful of tiny T traumas because they do happen. But what we can do is we can see them as psychological antibodies. So difficult things happen throughout life. We, we can escape that. And it's futile to, to try, really. But what we can do is we can use them positively. So the example I gave for myself, that was a very difficult experience. And I went through that process of awareness, went through that process of acceptance. But I thought, what can I do? If something like that happens again, what can mm. I do? So thinking about how I could approach that. And I actually had an experience with another person who, again, was, was trying to console me, was trying to be very nice and was saying things I, I personally found quite hurtful. And so I actually learned a bit more how to communicate and how to not be so frightened of really voicing my feelings and I said to this other friend I said you know what to me that feels a little bit like toxic positivity and it's not helping me in this moment can you just sit with me can you just sit with my feelings and and just listen and I know you want to fix it because you love me but it's not something that's going to be fixed and let's just allow those feelings to to exist so that was a coping mechanism that I learned from that difficult experience that really we can see as a little, a little bit of a psychological vaccine in the way that it built up a coping mechanism so that I had a tool to be able to use in future. And then some of the positive benefits of that, I found myself at night not going over the day like I had previously and thinking, oh, I wish I'd said something in the moment. Because you know what? I had. So to use that type of coping mechanism, to use that skill, to have that in my toolkit actually bolstered my psychological immune system so that I could actually have a lot better conversations about these difficult things and just feel so much more at ease. That's really helpful to hear. And you include a ton of different tools in the book. One exercise which is quite helpful because I actually audiobooked this so it's quite helpful to listen to was your journaling meditation mm-hmm. why is journaling so helpful when it comes to processing trauma and in this one you asked us what has upset you in the past that you didn't think was serious enough to bring up it is amazing how much judgment we place upon these tiny traumas so i'd love to talk about journaling and why is that important so that that is my tiny t question that is my core question and it's always so fascinating what that really does bring up for for people Mm. now we know from a huge body of research um, around emotional writing how beneficial it is And I would always suggest to write with the traditional pen and paper because it allows us a little bit more time to start processing those emotions. So human beings are meaning-making machines. If we cannot connect the dots, our minds will try in furious ways to do it, in furious ways to do it. And it will develop into some of those behavioral patterns I described, which really do drain our quality of life. 
So by journaling, by engaging in emotional writing, what we can do is it helps us to connect those dots. It helps us to express those feelings in a safe environment so that they don't pop up. Because what we often find as well, that we can react in situations, as we said before, and really not be sure why. It helps us make sense of our past, but also our present, so that we can actually devise a future that we want for ourselves. So what is the consequence? I know you've slightly touched on this, but what is the consequence then of not recognizing tiny traumas? Why is it so essential that this kind of new approach to psychology is so adopted? Because so many of us are just sleepwalking through life and not really thriving. And psychology, we use the word thrive so much. But don't we want that? Isn't that something to strive for in life, to be able for every single day to be really what we want it to be? And that could be a sense of contentment. That could be a sense of peace. We don't have to be reaching for these extreme levels of happiness all the time. It's not about perfection. It really is about that sense of acceptance. And it really has this transformative, calming effect. And it makes daily life just so much easier. It truly does. To touch upon, no one really teaches us about what a healthy level of happiness might look like or where happiness even comes from. Because obviously, I used to ask every guest how they defined happiness. And after 150 guests, everybody gave a different definition, which kind of proves the point that all of us have many different interpretations of happiness. But what I thought was interesting when I was listening to your book was when you broke down the seven factors that influence happiness, because I thought this could be helpful to discuss for anyone who isn't feeling that happy. This really gives a good signpost to look at the areas which potentially are being overlooked. Absolutely. And and it's interesting because I could give you a really boring scientific psychological explanation of happiness but we actually don't really even use the term as, as much. We use the term psychological well-being. And generally, it is the presence of positive emotions, the relative absence of negative emotions, and a sense of quality of life. And so in terms of thinking more about psychological well-being and contentment that we know is related to better emotional, psychological, and physical health outcomes, we need to not just look at those moments, not just the spikes of happiness, which are really important. And they are things that we should capture. Um, and I like to do that in a practice called anticipatory nostalgia, because it's actually quite protective for the future. But if we look at our lives in terms of the big seven factors, and Poppy, you're going to put me on the spot here, but I can remember them all. So health, financial well-being, family and friends, sort of work, occupation, community. There's two more. I'm actually going to have to look and see what they are. I think the point is, though, that there are a range. There are a range of different areas in life. And oftentimes, especially in very fast-paced societies and environments, we tend to just focus on one or two. Mm. So what I see most frequently is a real focus on, on work these days and finding that perfect unicorn career that is going to be something that magically makes us happy every single day of our lives where work is, is, is labor. It is called work for a reason. It's something that 
can be difficult, can also bring us joy, of course. But to focus just on one area, we can neglect the other areas. So we can often neglect our health. And that's a major one. Sometimes we can neglect relationships and family. Sometimes we can neglect recreational activities that are really important to have a very well-rounded kind of life and view of ourselves and to really actually get in touch with our own sense of identity with those different areas of life. So it's definitely a much more nuanced view of well-being or, or happiness. And it's something when we shift our perspective, when we reframe it in that way, we're less concerned then with being ecstatic all the time because that's not actually possible. And what can happen if we really are so hungry for that, it can become a little bit of a problem because those little bits of happiness are kind of like a drug and it's not quite enough and we get on what's called the hedonic treadmill and we need a bit more each time we need a bit more each time and actually that can be exhausting it can lead to burnout but it does just lead us to paradoxically be very unhappy hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Why do you think we increasingly put such an emphasis on work and finding happiness in work? Because I totally agree with what you see in your practice. I see this everywhere and I can even probably acknowledge it within myself too. We can look at the sociocultural factors involved in that. We definitely live in societies that prioritize work and productivity and equate these things to happiness, especially in societies that have a view of the world that is very much in terms of making money, buying things, having things, and equating the acquisition of these things with happiness. That happens still quite a lot, even now, when we, we kind of know that these things don't really make us happy, but it's very enticing. It is very enticing still. So what, why do we prioritize work? But it's not just that. It's that we have equated our outputs with our work and with our sense of identity. And we haven't had the space to explore our sense of identity if it's not attached to work, to a career anymore. But there are lots of ways to do that. And it can be incredibly freeing to, to be able to give ourselves the time and space to do that. 
Another interesting point you raise is how important language is, especially in its ability to make us more emotionally literate. And you go through different languages and how they have a million different words for things that take us 20 words to say. What was interesting about this for you? So this is one of my favorite bits, and I'm terrible at pronouncing some of these words. But what I found most interesting is that the English language, our words are really blunt. And when I submitted the manuscript of, of my book, I actually said that the English language doesn't have enough words. And, and the um, copy editor said, no, you're wrong. There are more words in the English language, but they're not as in depth, they're not as nuanced in terms of emotional and relational terms. So it's no surprise that we don't know how we're feeling if we don't even have the words to express how we're feeling. So one of my favorite words that I actually was feeling today is kilig. Um, and as I say, apologies if I haven't pronounced that properly. <laughs> and it's from the Philippines and it's that sense of butterflies in your stomach when you're excited to interact with someone. And it doesn't have to be romantically because we tend to, again, in our societies, we tend to focus on romantic love and romantic relationships. But I was, I get very excited to see my friends and I was excited to see you today. And I had that butterflies in my stomach feeling. And the fact that in other languages, we have words like that, that can express that whole emotion, that complex emotion. And we don't really have that in English. It means that we, we can probably, you know, do a bit of work on that. But what I would say is that, again, there's so much hope. We are getting better. They are teaching things like emotional literacy in schools a bit more. And they are teaching things like mindfulness in schools a bit more. So I have so, so much hope for future generations that they will be able to express emotions in ways that perhaps, you know, other generations haven't been able to. But there is a real sense of progression in terms of psychology, in terms of well-being, in terms of having all of this awareness around what affects us all in every single day of our lives. What is your advice for someone who experiences a tiny trauma but maybe isn't in an environment where it is okay to communicate it? For example, in the work environment when someone shares a really quite cutting comment and let's say someone knows that they are a sensitive person they kind of feel rejected by the comment but they realize that somebody else probably wouldn't have felt rejected by the comment they're just extra sensitive about that and they know it's probably not the best idea to bring it up with their very very busy boss but they do feel very hurt by it and it is a tiny trauma what are your thoughts about what someone should do then so there, there are two aspects to that. I would say that if there are regular occurrences of microaggressions in the workplace, that it is appropriate to bring that up, but bring it up in, in a safe space. So whether that is with a line manager or with someone who is independent, but say there is knowledge, there's awareness that some things that we do find hurtful because of our own constellation of, of tiny T's, the first step is to have awareness of how that feels in your body so that we can regulate some of these emotions and not be so controlled by emotions. So how does it feel for you? So really to think about it, to clean on the time, and I would suggest writing it down. Can you feel tension in your shoulders? Is your stomach actually, again, tying in knots? Where do you feel it in your body? 
And this can be a real signal of that stress response. And what we can do then is we can use the body to calm the mind. And breath work is just so incredible. And they're so popular now and so many people are talking about it. But we can use in the moment incredibly simple breathing techniques just to downregulate a little bit in the moment, just to be able to process that feeling of perhaps hurt, of perhaps embarrassment, whatever that uncomfortable feeling is. So just making sure you're breathing through your belly, not through your chest, because chest breathing is really a sign of the stress response. And having your exhale be a little bit longer than your inhale. So very, very simple. They don't need to be complicated techniques. And then afterwards, when you're back home, when you're in a place where you have more time to be able to think about it, to do some of the work around processing emotions. So identify it. What did I feel in that moment? Was that related to secondary feelings? And what does that tell me about what I need right now? And oftentimes what you need right now might have nothing to do with work, might have nothing to do with that comment, but has something to do in other areas of your life too. So really focusing in on that without sense of judgment, without any sense of shame as well. All of our feelings are valid. It's really what we do with them. You write that CBT can be too slow to interrupt our stress response as our stress association alarm goes off before we can cognitively rationalize that we're safe. Can you explain this in a bit more detail and how we can rewire our stress threat response? So CBT is fantastic. There is so much research to show how well it works for a range of issues. But sometimes it isn't quite fast enough. So that stress response is in that ancient part of our brain, that limbic system. And it is immediate because we have to have it. It's a survival instinct. And stress gets a really bad name, but we wouldn't be here without it. We wouldn't have survived for for all these years. And the difficulty is actually that that physiological stress response hasn't evolved as fast as we have and certainly hasn't evolved as fast as technology has. So it is there and it is something that's immediate. And in those terms, those physical methods are much better at regulating the stress response. So the breathing exercises, some of the progressive muscle relaxation exercises, those sorts of things using the body. The difficulty is when we try and use cognitive strategies to do that, they do take more time. They're they're sort of in the frontal lobe of the brain, the higher sort of order places, and it is a bit slower. And I often see clients who have really tried with CBT and found it works in some situations and it doesn't work in others. And so I distinguish the stress response from anxious thoughts. So anxious thoughts are often about something that has happened in the past, so rumination, or something that is might possibly happen in the future. So that could be a worry. The stress response is in the present, in the immediate time. And then we know if there's something happening right now, right in this moment, it actually is better to use our body, use those physiological techniques to be able to calm control so that it allows us the time to then use some of those cognitive strategies. So to layer these things together for a much more tailored approach to being able to manage a very complex environment that we now live in with actually a very ancient survival response. I mean, I think it was 
really important to actually address that CBT does have limitations because I think sometimes cognitive behavioral therapy can be given to everyone like penicillin. And I think you're correct in raising awareness that if CBT hasn't worked for you, then don't worry. There's kind of a reason for it that our system has already kind of jumped into action before our thinking brain has gone, no, 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 this is fine. I'm safe. No need to worry. And I really liked how you drew your research from the founder of EMDR. And I would love to go into that a bit more detail because it's another therapy on offer, which is slightly less spoken about, but can be really helpful in navigating trauma. So this is a technique, I would admit, desensitization, that we need a bit more evidence for it, I would say, as well. So I think CBT often is applied because we do have the evidence base. But just because there's not the evidence doesn't mean it's not effective yet. We just need to do that research. And there is a lot of smaller studies on these techniques. And they're really about bringing to the fore some of those traumatic experiences and memories And then using our eye movements to basically dampen down the association between the feelings, often the fear and that experience, whilst also reassuring ourselves at the same time that we can cope with this. And that's a really important part that often gets missed out in talking about these other types of techniques is that there really is that reinforcement that we do have the coping strategies, that we can cope with some of these difficult memories and associations. And what happens then is over time, we develop a more helpful and healthful association so that if there are aspects of the environment that trigger us, we are basically not so triggered because those associations are dampened. But then also we find that increases self-confidence. People are able to then go out and do the things that they really want to do are less held back by these traumatic associations. But what I would say is like with any psychological technique to try it with someone who is fully qualified and has experience in this because in certain areas of the world, it's not it's not so commonly used. And definitely in the UK, there's not that many people that are engaged in it. Can you give us an example of how EMDR would work? So, for instance, if if someone has a specific phobia, for example, if they're scared of enclosed spaces, it could be that they had an experience in the past that was very, very frightening. So they could have been, perhaps, say, they're in a theatre and there was a fire, or even an alarm went off when you're when you're quite young and don't really know what's going on. And actually, it doesn't didn't even know it for a long time. It didn't even exist until perhaps you were a bit older, maybe at university, and all of a sudden. You felt an intense sense of fear going into a lecture hall. But again, it it wasn't really clear why, because it hadn't happened for so long. So that sort of memory would be brought to the fore. And then we would use eye movement to track the therapist's hand going from one side to the other, whilst also having a very positive affirmation that you are safe and that you can cope with these feelings. So that would then reassociate that environment, those environmental features with feelings of safety rather than feelings of fear. That's really, really helpful. And I find it so empowering when you start to understand the therapies like EMDR. And this is very much the message I received from your book is how we can change our mental health. You know, we don't need to be imprisoned by these 
traumas from the past because we can truly rewire our brain and you kind of explain how. Definitely. And and also to understand that some of our reactions, you know, are so quick, are so immediate. And there are many different techniques that we can use to do that rewiring that we are not caught. We, we do not have to be caught in trauma, that we can change um, the way that our brains are wired. And we know that. We know in terms of from research into neuroplasticity that it's absolutely possible. And just because something hasn't worked for you in the past, just because some approach hasn't worked for you in the past, it doesn't mean that there aren't more techniques. And also we are developing techniques all the time. So again, it is very, very hopeful. And it often is a combination of techniques. And we really are moving more into personalized medicine. And that includes personalized psychological medicine as well. This also kind of links to distraction, the tool of distraction as a technique for effective treatment to stress. I'd love to dive into this. What does the research say around distraction being a useful mechanism? How can we apply this to our own lives? So I know distract like that is going to have so many people like, no, it's a, it's a terrible technique used sort of on a consistent basis to avoid problems, distraction is known as a maladaptive coping mechanism used in the short term to be able to sort of disassociate from some of the features of the environment that may be causing that stress or actually to distract us from some behaviors that are maladaptive for us. It can be incredibly helpful because oftentimes when that stress response is triggered, we can become very highly focused on it. And what that does is it maintains that stress response. But if you're not in a situation that has a true threat to your physical safety, it can be okay to distract. So that is one thing that we often do with mindfulness. We actually move away, we move away from the stressor, from the trigger of that stress, and we think more about perhaps our senses. We think more about perhaps what we can see, what we can hear, what we can taste, what we can touch, to move away, to distract our minds from that preoccupation with that perceived trigger in the environment because that's the important part it's our perception of that threat that is really what triggers the stress response it's interesting i i think i read a study that found people who were in a car crash if they played tetris they actually reduced the car crash having post-traumatic effects because the game has provided a really useful distraction technique and not forming that close associative memory. Absolutely. So our brains will want to be active. And again, they will try and make sense. So sometimes if we do allow our minds to be very preoccupied with things, it can enforce and embed and maintain those neural associations when actually we can move on to things that are much more helpful to us. I think this is a really big point. And actually, it was my only counterpoint, I guess, that I had around tiny traumas, because I felt very seen in terms of, oh, wow, okay, there's so many tiny traumas that I've definitely pushed down saying, oh, they're too small enough. Don't be so ridiculous, move on. And I think that has definitely been harmful over the long term. And I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. But also I thought, ah, if I start to give energy to all these tiny traumas, am I not just making them bigger traumas? They're almost kind of little chips 
in Iraq, am I not just making <laughs> these indents huge? And then suddenly they really do affect my psychology more. And so that's why the AAA approach is a dynamic process. And it is not to linger on, on the individual tiny traumas. It's not to dwell. It's not to ruminate. It's to have the awareness so that we can use our experiences proactively, and I mean proactively, dynamically, and that we do develop those coping mechanisms. We do strengthen our psychological immune mm. system. And then that means that everything we experience in life, we can use for our own well-being, for our own mental health in the way that really, truly serves us. That's really helpful. And I love how you've just re-emphasized the dynamic approach to trauma. I think that's so helpful in moving us forward and using all these experience to make us stronger in the future. And that's why I do love the metaphor of this psychological immune system. It, it works so well and helps you visualize it in such a useful way. Thank you so much, Dr. Meg, for joining us. Where is the best place for people to find you and ask any further questions? So my website is drmegarrell.com and the book is out now. You can find it on all your normal online retailers, but you don't have to go to the big ones if you don't want to. There are some smaller booksellers as well, but also in physical bookstores. But um, yeah, normal socials, please do, please do ping me a message, share your experience because the more we talk about these things, the more we can normalize them. And the less shame that we will feel around our feelings towards these experiences. And that really is my goal. I was talking to my mum about the book, who's a psychotherapist. And she said, I really don't think there is anyone that has not had a tiny trauma. <laughs> and uh, I think that's really nice for people to know we're all in the same boat. We are definitely all in the same boat, without a doubt. The great thing about where we are now in terms of our evolution and our understanding of mental health is that we have come such a long way and we can all do so much more to just go that bit further to have that nuanced conversation to be able to help each other thank you so much for listening and if you enjoyed today please hit subscribe and leave a comment because this helps the podcast so much. I'd be endlessly grateful if you wouldn't mind doing so. My mental health book, Happy Not Perfect, is available to order now. The book teaches you how to be a flexible thinker, a skill that helps you navigate any challenge that might come your way, helps you manage emotions and helps you thrive to be the bendiest version of yourself. Until next time, I love hearing from you. So do shoot me a message on Instagram. Send me a DM with any of your thoughts. Stay safe and well. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.